Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Let me ask you a question. What is something that you enjoy or, or, or that, that everybody else seems to like? that it's super popular, that everybody's like into, but you just cannot do it. You just cannot stand it. You think it's disgusting. You think it's silly. It's childish. Something like that. I don't know. You got something? Put it in your brain. I asked this online on Facebook and, and Twitter. I asked this, and I was amazed at the number of responses. If you want somebody to comment on your post, just ask them what they do not like. Apparently, people have lots of opinions about what they do not like. Some of these things, the number one response— this probably will not shock you, but the number one response of things that are popular that you just don't like is coffee. There's some people that don't like. Anybody in here not like coffee? Look at you. Look at you folks. That's fine. We love you anyways. Coffee. Coffee was the number one. Number two, and these aren't, these aren't in order. Coffee was. I saw that so many times. There's just some more ones. Uh, popcorn. There are folks that don't like popcorn. There are gourmet co- or popcorn shops. Y'all should go to those. There's a flavor you like, I promise. Ketchup. Some people don't like ketchup because they've never had the spicy Whataburger ketchup, right, Jackie? That's right. Spicy Whataburger ketchup is yummy. This next one, this next category was said by so many people, but I understand it. I understand this. Olives, mushrooms, and crawfish. Like, I like those things, uh, but looking at them, I understand why people don't like them, all right? I had crawfish last night, uh, and yeah, they're, they're gross looking. They're delicious, but they're gross. One brother said he does not like hugs. You know what I thought? I thought he needs a hug is what he needs. Who doesn't like hugs? You're just hugging the wrong person. If you don't like hugs, you're hugging the wrong person. Um, Some people said, and this was mentioned a number of times, the TV shows Friends and The Office. Seriously, right? Those shows are hilarious. Um... Friends, not so much. I caught an episode of Friends the other day, and I was like, I cannot believe we used to think these guys were funny. Um, They're not anymore. I also used to think they were old. Uh, I did, uh, but they're not. The office, if you've ever worked in any sort of office setting, the office is hilarious. Uh, I did see a couple of people, and this is one of those reasons why I'm glad we don't have, like, hymnals in the back of these chairs, because I don't want you to throw anything at me. There were a couple of people who said they do not like bacon. Really, seriously, some people said no bacon. And this is why I don't want you to throw anything. I'm kind of with them, all right? Bacon is okay. Now here, here, I'm like, I'm one foot in, one foot out. Bacon's okay. It's good. I like bacon on a baked potato. I like bacon in my hamburger. I like bacon in my salad. In fact, if I'm eating a salad, I want it to be predominantly bacon, all right? Uh, Because salads are what my food eats, right? So that's not what I eat. That's what my food eats. And so I'm not a big fan of bacon, but um, I I like it in things. I just don't like it by itself. By itself, it really makes me like nauseous. The other day, Jackie was making something and she had some bacon on the counter and I went up and, and it smells so good. I'm with you. It smells so good. It even looks kind of appealing. But then I took a bite of it and I'm like, I can't believe people eat this stuff. It's just so... Ooh, it's, it's literally hot pig fat, and um, people eat that. What if I told you this, though? Whatever the thing is that's in your brain, 
the thing that you're like, I know people like this, but I don't like it. Whatever that is. Your, your, your contrarian opinion on that. What if I told you, everybody else likes it, so you should like it. Does that help? Did anybody get converted at that moment? Everybody else likes mayonnaise, so you should love mayonnaise. In fact, there are some people that eat mayonnaise by the spoonful, and so you should do that. <laughs> That's worse than bacon, right? Um, so it doesn't matter, right? In fact, that's the point. You have an opinion. You have a mind outside of public opinion. And so in this case in particular, you don't care what everybody else thinks. In fact, you know that you are against public opinion. One day Jesus was asking his friends, his disciples, his students, he was asking them a question, and it was all about this. It was all about public opinion. Jesus wanted to know, hey, what does everyone else think? What, what is their opinion? Uh, he says it in Luke 9, 18 through 20. You've already heard it, beautifully read. But let me read it again to you. This is what Jesus says while he was praying in private. Listen, think about that just for a second. Jesus was praying with his disciples, stops the prayer, and says, hey, what does everybody else, that's me like talking during a prayer, you know, you gotta have one eye closed. What does everyone else think? Isn't that huge? It just kind of puts a new light on it. Hey, while he was praying in private, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, the one of the ancient prophets has come back. I kind of see that like there's, you know, there's all these disciples standing around. Jesus says, who did the crowds say? And they're like, hey, I heard one guy down at the market says, you are John the Baptist. Isn't that funny? And some other one's like, I've heard that. Yeah, my mom thinks that, you know, that kind of thing. And everybody's sort of laughing and, and agreeing and throwing out things. This is what they think, and it's ridiculous, you know? That's sort of the idea. Then Jesus says, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, God's Messiah. Now, we don't know how Peter's response was. We weren't there. We can't really capture the tone of it. Either Peter says, God's Messiah. Mm, I'm right, you know? He either says it like that or he goes, God's Messiah? Am I right? Am I right? We don't know. But however those answers are, let's pray first and let's see how it applies and how it impacts our world today. God, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the word that you have given us. Thank you for those who are gathered here in person, those who are gathered online. God, I pray, as I do every morning, I pray that our church would have an adventurous evangelistic spirit, that we would chase after people who do not yet know you, whether it's online or in person. But as we gather today, God, I pray that in that spirit, we would make much of you. So God, be with our minds and our hearts as we look at the word of God. Apply them and help us to live it. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Jesus starts very far away, and then he gets closer and closer. In fact, if you were going to do an outline of this text, an outline of today's sermon, this would be the outline. What do they think? What do you think? What do you do? What do you feel? What do they think? What do you think? What do you do? What do you feel? It gets closer and closer and closer to the heart. To begin with, Jesus asked this question, this public opinion question. Hey, what do they think? What's the public opinion? What's the exit polls telling you? What's your online survey shown you? He wants to know what the other people outside of the group 
our thinking? And I think it's a good question for us today. How would you say that the majority of people in your sphere, in your circle, think? I'm not talking about in Harvard or in Hollywood. I'm talking about right now in Conway, at UCA, um, Central, Hendricks, Bologna, Greenbrier, wherever you live, wherever your circles are, what do they think about Jesus? I think that largely the people that I am um, involved with that aren't members of our church, I think that they think that Jesus is inspirational. I think a lot of people think that. That he's inspirational. I think that they think he was a good guy, that he did some good things. I think all of this because uh, they quote him. Because they, they, they mention his name when they're thinking about different things in songs and in lyrics that they like. They mention Jesus. I think they think all of these things. I, I would argue, though, that I, they don't think that he is God. That they don't think that he is literally the incarnate Son of God because their lives are not different. We all know that your actions are determined in large part by what you think. And that's why Jesus is asking this question. In fact, that's exactly what he's about to do. But I would argue that of the 70,000 or so people and the 16,000 um, college students that live around our, our, our church here, I would argue that the majority of them do not believe that he is God because their lives don't look like they think that he is God. And I'm not trying to heap guilt on them. I'm not wagging my finger or, or, or looking down at them. I'm just saying by observation, people who do not connect to the church that he established— do not give sacrificially because he gives sacrificially, are not tolerant of other people, then they seem to be not actually believing that Jesus is God. Now, I'm not saying that we need to be tolerant of errant views or, or destructive philosophies, but Jesus was at least tolerant of the people who held those views. There's a difference. He loved people but confronted sin. I think because the way that people act, we don't largely, we as our culture and our community, we don't largely see Jesus as God. We see him as good. We see him as a prophet, maybe, a nice guy. It's a huge question that really weighs on our heart. What do other people think about him? And then Jesus does this uh, 180, like slamming on the brakes. He says, but you, what do you think? Who do you think? that I am. One day uh, in my previous church, I needed my brakes changed. Uh, I wasn't sure if it was the pads or the whole thing. I don't know. I don't know anything about this stuff. I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not really good uh, mechanically. And so I had a friend who, who did this. He changed brakes and he worked on tires and all that kind of stuff um, in, in a city kind of a, a distance away. But so I asked him, I said, locally, where should I take my vehicle to get the brakes changed? And he says, my house. Bring your truck over to my house. Go get some brakes. Bring them over to um, uh, my house, and then we'll change them out. And I was like, sweet. This sounds really cool and convenient. So I go to the auto parts store, and remember, I don't know anything. And I told the guy, this is what vehicle I have. I need some brakes. And uh, he puts three boxes. There's a black box, a silver box, and a gold box. And so I bought the gold one because it was gold. I have no idea what they do or, or why this one was better or anything like that. And that's just showing my ignorance. So I take it. I take it over to the guy's house. And uh, he takes my truck. He jacks up one side and pulls the tire off like it's nothing. Just does this. Pulls the tire off. I'm standing back really amazed at this. He's got some tools. He's got some special gloves. He takes that off. He puts it together. We're sitting there talking. I'm standing over behind him like this. He's down there doing this stuff. We're talking about the weather and kids and all that sort of stuff. And then he gets done and he says, okay, your turn. And I thought, 
what do you mean my turn? And he says, you're going to do the next one. And I said, but breaks seem important. We should let professionals do that. Also, I really wasn't paying attention. I know you were showing me that whole thing, but I, I was not paying attention at all. But he walked me through it, and I was able to do it. That landed on me the same way that this has to land on the disciples. You see, he does it in the context of public opinion. It would be different if Jesus was standing over there, and he's just talking to one of the disciples by themselves, and he says, hey, who do you think that I am? Like, really, what do you think, like, in your heart and your mind? That would be a totally different conversation than the whole crowd getting together. We're all laughing. We're all joking. And we're like, hey, this person said this, and this person said this is public opinion. And then Jesus says, yeah, but you, who do you say that I am? When you put it in the, in the, in the framing of public opinion, then the question means a lot more. Who do you say I am? The disciples have the opportunity at this point to either make up their own minds and break from public opinion or hold public opinion. Now, that's not to say that public opinion is wrong. If public opinion is right, you hold to it. But they are standing at a position here where they are in front of their group of friends, where they have already said and maybe even made fun of some of the other opinions out there. And now Jesus wants to know, who do you say that I am? And we all know the conflict with that, right? We, we have tension in our own hearts about these things. We are obsessed with choosing the thing with the, the highest ratings on Google or Yelp or Amazon. If you have two choices, then you start to look at the stars. And this one has five stars, even though you've never met any of these people that rated that and, and, and their opinions or anything like that. But it has five, and so I'm going to go with the public opinion, right? We want to know which movie coming out has the highest Rotten Tomatoes review. We want to know the public opinion because it is difficult to break from the public opinion. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He says, what do they think? What do you think? I have found that it is much easier to get people to agree with what is popular than it even is to get them to see what is right. It is far easier to get people to agree to what is popular than it is to even see what is right. And at this point, you, every person listening to me right now, if you're sitting in this room or if you're watching online, you have the very same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? You have to answer that. It's written giant on the walls here in the room, and there's this giant blank with a question mark after it, and you have to fill that in. Who do you say that Jesus is? For the last eight weeks, we have followed along as Luke introduces to us who Jesus is. He says he's a miracle worker, that he forgives people, that he walks up to rational, intelligent adults and says, follow me, and they leave everything and follow him. At some point, if you believe any of that is true, let's just say you believe half of it is true, then you have to answer the question, well, then who do you say that Jesus is? If he historically did do what we believe that he did do, then you have to answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? You have to answer who you think that he is. And so Peter answers him. He says, God's Messiah. Jesus doesn't correct that. Seems to be the right answer. And he moves on to the very next phrase. He goes away from the thinking to where public opinion eventually takes you. The reason we want to know what the crowd is saying, the reason Jesus wants to know what you are thinking, is because it leads to where it always leads. 
actions. Jesus wants to move to the doing, to the action, to the investing, the reward, and the return. Look at Luke 9, 22 through 24. It is necessary, the Son of Man, for the Son of Man. Now watch all of the action words that are happening in this text. It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Did you notice all of the action words in there? Jesus has moved from the thoughts to the rubber meeting the road. This is Jesus talking about the actual things that are going to happen. And he has two main thoughts, two main actions that he wants to uh, explain or wants to bring up to the front here. The first one Jesus says is, I am Jesus, the Messiah. I am going to die. Now that, that, that's normal to us. We know Jesus through the idea of the cross. We are introduced to him from, from the very first time that you ever hear anything about Jesus. You hear that he was, he was born on Christmas and then he died on Easter. That's what we know. But to them, it would have been shocking. Peter just said, you are God's Messiah. And Jesus responds to that by saying, yeah, you're right, I'm going to die. That's shocking to its core because when Peter says he's the Messiah, what Peter is actually saying was, I believe you are the chosen one by God who will bring to us political, military, financial, security, and safety. You will bring to us power and security. This is what Peter says when he says that you are the Messiah. And so for Jesus to respond by saying, you're right, but I'm going to be rejected, suffer, and be killed. It was shocking to them because that's not what they expected the Messiah to do. That's not what they expected him to do. But he goes a step further. That very next part, Jesus tells them that those who follow him, the special hero of God— they must take up their cross daily. He is not talking about wearing a piece of jewelry. He's talking about self-sacrifice. That they wouldn't just wear a, a cross around their neck, but that every single day, in every decision, that they would choose to do what is good for other people to the glory of God. That's what he's saying that they would do. And that's shocking to them. This whole concept where, where, where he's saying, what do they think? What do you think? And then the very next thing is that Jesus would suffer and die and that you would, be need, that you would need to be willing to sacrifice. These are contrary to what they thought. It's not what they thought the Messiah would do. It's not what they planned on doing themselves. They thought it was going to be all about themselves. They thought it was going to be all about them and what they needed. This is the point. Jesus wants them to count the cost, to understand that what it really means to follow Jesus, that if you put in that blank on the wall, Messiah or Christ or, or Holy Savior, if you put that in that, then you are counting the cost, meaning that you acknowledge that he saved you through suffering and that you live a life of sacrifice. That's what he wants them to understand. That's what he wants them to count the question then would be, why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to follow a person, follow a hero that requires that they sacrifice? Well, the short answer is, when you sacrifice yourself, you get Jesus. When you lay down your own desires, you get what he desires for you. 
When you stop trusting in all that you can do, you get all that he can do, which is far better and right and good and beautiful and true. That's why. J.D. Greer, this morning, this morning, J.D. Greer posted this to Facebook. Take up your cross means more than just a passive surrender. It means actively devoting your life to Jesus' mission. It's not just a passive surrender. It is actively action, doing, devoting your life to Jesus' mission. That's what it means when Jesus says, take up your cross. So Jesus is getting closer and closer to the heart of the person. What do they think? What do you think? What are you willing to do? And then he moves even closer to the idea of feel. What do you feel? The longer that I work with people, the more that I am coming to the conclusion that it is at least probable, it is at least probable that we are not thinking beings beings that feel, we are feeling beings that think. That we are primarily people who feel and then we think. Let me give you an example. Baseball. Baseball games. Who doesn't love a late summer evening baseball game? You have the whole sights and the smells. You have the the crackling music over the the speaker system. The lights in the dark night. I love that part. You've got the crack of the bat and the roar of the crowd. You've got the collective uh, disappointment when there's a strikeout. Everybody wearing the same colors and cheering alongside one another. The food and and like I said, the smells and, and, and just the noise of it all. Who doesn't love the feeling of baseball. I love all of that about baseball, and I don't like baseball. I will go with anybody to just about any baseball game, and particularly if it's softball, it's even better. I will go to one of these because of the feeling of it more than the game. They tell me that baseball is a thinking man's game. It must be because I completely don't understand it at all. They tell me there's strategy and there's offense. and there's, I, don't, I don't see any of that out there. All I know is that there are hot dogs and that you get to sit outside with your friends. So that all sounds amazing to me. If you can at all understand why it is that people would love a baseball game but not like baseball, then you understand that we as humans have this part of us that is all about the feel of something, even if it's not with the thinking of something. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 9, 26. For whoever is ashamed, that's a feeling, of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and of the holy angels. The emotion that Jesus wants to bring up to the front here is shame. Shame is that emotion. Now, in our Western culture, our dominant culture in this room right now, our Western culture, we, we push shame down. We don't really think a lot about shame. We are much more attuned to things like guilt or even embarrassment, the personal embarrassment. But in Eastern cultures, and particularly the culture that dominated the writing of the text, shame was and is a, a, a front-facing emotion. It is a feeling of, of embarrassing the whole. We are so independent and so self-assured that we're only worried about whether or not we are embarrassed. But there is this whole concept and this whole identity of being a part of a family or being a part of a community or being a part of a church or an organization in which you don't want to bring embarrassment to the whole. You don't want to do that. And you see throughout Scripture that shame is a huge part of the story. 
In the very first couple of stories that we have, Adam hid himself. He ran and hid and covered himself. Why and when? When he realized that he was exposed. When Adam realized that he was uncovered, when he felt shame, in the very beginning, what we understand about the sin and about human relationship with God is that when you reject God, you are exposed and therefore feel shame. That's how that starts, and that's what carries through. There's this whole thread that goes all the way throughout the Bible. Shame is one of the places where doing and thinking meet. Our feelings, our emotions are that way. Here Jesus says that we are in danger of feeling shame. But why would anybody feel shame when it comes to Jesus or the whole or the church? Because of all of that suffering, rejection, and, and killing business that Jesus just talked about there. What kind of group, what kind of organization, what kind of community builds its whole identity on a hero who dies? What kind of organization builds its whole ethos and the way that we function on the concept of others before us? That we would push ourselves down when everything within humanity, with everything within the way that we are written and built says, live for you, fight for you, do what is good for you. This whole idea is this area in which Jesus says you are going to be tempted to feel shame because your hero will be stripped bare and beaten and rejected and killed. That's why we might feel that. And then his words are that he would expect us to do the same thing. One day we were leaving the house. My family was, and we're standing in the garage, and I remember this. And my second son, Leland, he says to me, he says, Dad, do you like those shoes? And I said, yeah. And he goes, no, like, do you think they look good? <laughs> and I said, Yeah. I've been wearing these for, I wore them last night actually. And I said, and it, and it dawned on me, I felt, I understood the same thing that you all understand. He felt shame from his dad's shoes. That if I walk out of here with him, if we go out in public, he's going to feel shame for that. You know what I felt? Not a thing. I wore those shoes right out in public. I still wear those shoes out in public, you know? That's shame. That's the feeling that you would derive embarrassment from somebody else's actions and from their exposure. Jesus says, you're going to be tempted to feel shame because of me. You're going to be tempted to feel shame because of what I've said and what I'm doing and the way in which I'm going to accomplish it. But the Bible teaches us that in a good way, we shouldn't feel shame, but we should feel pride. Pride in Jesus 1 Corinthians says it this way. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised by the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring nothing what is viewed as something. What is he talking about? 
That sounds like a lot of words. What he's talking about? He's talking about the death of Jesus. He's talking about the rejection and the suffering and the death of Jesus. All of that was designed, as Jesus was saying, not to stop there, but to ultimately result in his resurrection, that he would come back to life. In another way of saying it, all of that was to do something that the strongest couldn't do, that the wisest couldn't figure out. It was to save humanity. So that's why 1 Corinthians continues in this way. So that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, in order that as it is written, let no one boast except for those who boast in the Lord. Here's the point. The way that God sees it, the way that Jesus taught it, you can be proud of what Jesus did because only Jesus could do it and you benefited from it. Not an arrogant boasting or pride, but a confident rest in what Jesus did. He taught and he felt. What Jesus did, what Jesus taught, and what Jesus felt. Here's the offer. Here's the thing that you can uh, receive, if you want to, by filling in the blank that is on the wall. How you answer that question, Jesus responds this way. If you trust him, then he will redeem all of you. Your actions, your thoughts, your feelings, your mind, your body, and your soul. I want you to think about something that we don't often think about, nor do we want to talk about. How often have you gotten into a space, if you've been in church for a while, how often have you gotten into a space where you feel like you, you think you know the right things? You're thinking, like, surely I'm not stupid. I've been in church a while. I, I've read some of the Bible. I, um, I think I know the things about Jesus, like the basic stuff, right? I think everybody feels that way. They, they think that. And then you start to examine, well, if my mind is right, then my actions, what, what am I doing with my life? You know, and you think about things like, I do, I do serve. I have some good friends that I hang out with. I, I give when I can financially. I volunteer when they ask me to volunteer. I'm kind to people. Just the other day, I did something nice to another person just to show them the love of Jesus. I really did that. I didn't want any self. I really did want to show them the love of Jesus. You feel like I'm thinking the right way. I'm doing the right thing. And then you walk over here into this space and then you go, but then why do I feel so far from God? Why do I feel broken? Why do I keep feeling guilt and shame and pain why do I walk into the church and feel like I don't deserve to be here? That Jesus standing on the cross wouldn't save me. Because listen to me, I think that's because we think salvation or what God did for us or, or what Christ did for us on the cross just stays over in these realms and that he didn't redeem all of that. He didn't, his blood went over my dumb thoughts his blood went over my dumb actions. But let me tell you this. His blood redeemed all of my past feelings. All of the things that bring me guilt. All of the things that bring me insecurities. All of those things, Jesus redeemed those as well. When Jesus offers the gospel, when Jesus says, trust me, he's saying, and I will wash you white as snow. All of you. All the whole of you. Yesterday, there was a a celebration of life service that we had. It was in Houston, but we, we broadcast it here because it was a person that was close to many of our church members. 
In that service, the pastor did one of those things where he, where he told people about Jesus, and then he said, every head bowed, every eye closed. And I think those are great, and I hope people did respond um, there in Houston or maybe even here in Conway. I think those are awesome. But I, I don't want to do that right now. I want to do something similar to that. With every head up, every eye open, I want to ask you, how do you finish the question? Have you trusted Jesus? Have you trusted him with your whole mind and body and soul? There's no reason to put your head down or close your eyes. There's no shame in this. In fact, this is good. This is great. And so in this moment right now, if you are for the first time saying, I trust you, Jesus. I trust in what that guy is saying. I trust that. Then would you, after the service, tell me about it? Would you come by? I'll be right out that door. Will you please tell me about that idea? It is good. It is great. It is beautiful. It is true to trust Jesus because he redeems all of us. Here's the bottom line, the application, what all of this is driving to. It is the answer to that question on the wall. Jesus is what? What do you say Jesus is? It is not a multiple choice answer. That's really what I'm trying to drive home here. It's not like you got A, B, C, D. He's a, the Messiah, a prophet, a lunatic, or a liar. It's not like you just pick one of those. The way that you answer the question, the way that you fill in that blank, is by everything that you think, everything that you do, everything that you feel, your emotions. It is all of you or it is none of you. That's what Jesus is driving at. Do you trust him with all of you or do you trust him with none of you? In the mid-1800s in the United States, there was this uh, guy. His name was William Vanderventer. Vanderventer, that's a long one. Yeah, I saw it one time as three words and I saw it one time as one word. I'm gonna go with one. William Vanderventer was a art teacher. He taught music and art and expression, all those sort of things. He was so active in his church that uh, people, church members, constantly encouraged him and said, you need to go into ministry, like full-time ministry. You need to preach and sing. You need to travel, all that kind of stuff, because you're really committed to this Jesus idea. And he was, except for he didn't want to give up art. He loved art. And so it took him five years, five years of what we call wrestling with God, of saying, should I go or should I not? So where he finally surrendered, and I love the way that he surrendered. He surrendered in such a way that he became a hymn writer. He took the art and redeemed it for God, which I think is important for you to know. When Jesus calls you into ministry, he's not necessarily calling you to fit into some form of some guy that stands on a stage. He's calling you to use everything and every ability that you have and every uh, position you have for the good of the kingdom. And that's what William Vanderventer did. He became a very famous and well-known preacher and songwriter. He didn't give up art. He leveraged it for Jesus. He would often visit a school in Florida, in Tampa, where he would hang out with the students. One of the students who said he was deeply influenced by this guy wrote this. He said, We students loved this kind, deeply spiritual gentleman and often gathered in his winter home in Tampa, Florida. He must have been writing really good songs if he has a winter home in Tampa, Florida. So he's gathered at his winter home in Tampa, Florida for an evening of fellowship and singing. That student was at that time discovering his own voice, discovering his own ministry. That student was Billy Graham. William Vanderventer didn't give up art. He used it 
and he influenced a lot of people. William Vanderbinter wrote one of wrote a hymn. A hymn is just a spiritual song. He wrote a spiritual song that I believe closed more sermons in the history of the, the English church than any song ever. In fact, I can't prove it, but when we get to heaven, we can ask God, I think this one song written by William Vanderventer closed out more church services, particularly Baptist churches, than any song ever. I'm going to read to you some of the lyrics, and as I read them to you, I want you to hear the words, the doing, the feeling, the thinking. A life that picks up the cross to follow Jesus, the doing, the feeling, and the thinking, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence, daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, make me Savior, holy thine. Let me feel thy Holy Spirit, truly know that thou art mine. I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.